Turn in your Bibles to Luke 5. And starting in the 17th verse through the 26th verse. The word of the Lord. On one of those days, as he, Jesus, that is, was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. Another translation says friend. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? For who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He said to them who was paralyzed, said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go to your house. Go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Father God, we pray now for the illumination of the Holy Spirit and your power to convict us and convince us, Lord, of the truth, that Jesus came to, to forgive, to heal, and to demonstrate the authority from heaven that you had given him to save people. We pray now, O God, that, Lord, this sermon would find us that the words, Lord, of my mouth would land in our hearts in a way causing us to leave this place examining ourselves, that we might be conformed to the likeness and image of your Son, Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Uh, well, last week we, um, we learned that because of Jesus' miracles and the constant crowds gathering around him, that Jesus frequently uh, withdrew to desolate places to pray. It was the last verse, verse 16 of of our sermon last week. And Jesus is not just seeking to evade the paparazzi, if you will. Um, He is seeking the Father's strength. And that's interesting because Jesus, uh, the divine Son of God, God incarnate, Um, doesn't just assume everything's going to be okay. He constantly is seeking his father's help to be strengthened for the ministry that he's been given. He's constantly seeking the empowering of the father through the spirit to do this mission that he's been given. He prays for strength for divine service and continued power to heal. 
And his ministry now is starting to make headlines in the area. And Pharisees, it says in our, in our verse here, from every village come out to hear him. So uh, from Galilee and Judea and even as far as Jerusalem, which is 80 miles away, the Pharisees have heard the fame of this miracle worker and they've come out from distances to, to hear and to investigate. They want to know what's going on. That's good for us to at least explore who were the Pharisees. This is the first place that Luke mentions the Pharisees. And um, Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, says that at this time uh, in the region there were 6,000 Pharisees. And there were more Pharisees than the Sadducees in the land at this time. And they were members of the most important um, influential religious group um, in Judaism at the time of Jesus. And the Pharisees were strict religious adherence to the laws of the Old Testament and to numerous additional traditions. And like I said, they far outnumbered the Sadducees, whom they differed with over the existence of angels and the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees rejected both the existence of angels and the idea of the resurrection. And as the old joke goes, that's why they were sad, you see. And many, uh, many Bible teachers actually do um, a disservice to the discussion of the Pharisees. And we, we kind of have, most of us have been exposed to a really flat reading of the Pharisees. They were just legalistic bad guys. That's kind of the story we get from uh, the, the Pharisees. And, but the truth is, is that um, they were much more complex than that. Uh, the word Pharisee um, was a... Uh, Pharisee meant a separated one. Uh, Pharisees were separate. They were sectarian. They were essentially like a first century Puritan. And during the Roman occupation, the Pharisees were considered good guys by most people. They took their faith really seriously in a time of religious compromise, and they were skilled in teaching and interpretation of the law. And they taught the sovereignty of God over all things, and they even believed in predestination. Kudos for that. Um, and in many ways, their theology was on point. In Matthew 23 and 3, Jesus tells the people, do as they say, but not as they do, acknowledging that most of what the Pharisees believed was right. And so the Pharisees, in some sense, were kind of the good guys. They were the guys who took the authority of Scripture Seriously, they loved and revered the word of God and the Bible and the law of Moses, and they took their faith seriously, and they believed that you know, God was serious and God was real and, and that people ought to live in a way that responded and comported to the word of God and the commandments. And they weren't all bad. In fact, many of them later on became followers of Jesus. Uh, their biggest problem, though, was that they were so focused on teaching others what the law of Moses said, that they rarely focused on their own heart. Right? You can connect with that, right? The idea that we want to defend what is right and what is true so much that we neglect our own heart. We neglect our own faithfulness to the things that we're preaching to other people. 
So they weren't very good at self-examination. And we as Christians can be that way also. And in verse 17, we're told that on one of these days, as Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. You could kind of picture the scene. They're sitting there, maybe all of them along the back wall of this house or this area, and they're, you know, they're kind of sitting in judgment and taking an assessment. So they're not there to sit under Jesus' teaching so much as they're there to kind of investigate, you know, who is this person? And we're told the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. So Luke has already told us this, but he's reiterating it again, that God's power on Jesus to heal is present with, with him. That Jesus is, uh, he's imbibed with the power of God to heal. And this scene is, it's rife with incredible tension. So here's Jesus, this miracle worker from God, who some of the people have not really figured out who he is. And then here's the Pharisees. And this is really the first place that there's this collision of authority. So I want you to see as we look at this this morning that there is the Pharisees who have the authority of the temple. And then there's Jesus who has the authority from the Father. And they're being brought into conflict with each other. And here's this paralyzed man whose friends carry him on his bed or on a stretcher and bring him to Jesus because, you know, stories of Jesus' power have spread throughout the entire region. Some of us have people close to us who are ill or sick or um, have um, incredible diseases um, that um, they suffer from. And some of those people are members of our own family. My son has hemophilia and He's 18 now, he'll be 19 in a month, but when he was a little boy, we were always constantly in the doctor with him, and he had surgeries, and there was a lot of crying going on, and it was hard to see, it's hard to see your, your child constantly poked with needles and under x-rays and examination, and by the time he was six years old, he had several surgeries, and at that time, I would have given anything to see him healed and to, to see him stop crying and it was heartbreaking. And so there's this man, and he has these friends, and they love him so much. This paralyzed man has these friends who love him so much that they bring him to this place where Jesus is. And it's so crowded that they can't even get through the door. They take him up on the roof of the house and they remove the roof and they lower him down right in front of Jesus. And I just, I want you to picture this for a moment. So here are these men, three or four men, and they're carrying a, their friend on a, a cot or a stretcher. And the place is so packed. Pharisees are inside. The crowds are inside. And Jesus is maybe in the, in the middle of a, of a home. And he's teaching. And they can't even get through the door. And they don't just go away. What they do is... They go up on the roof, and houses in Palestine at this time typically had steps um, going up to the roof, and if that house didn't have a step, the neighbor's house did, and you would, you would go up the steps and get on the roof and, and then jump over to the next roof to get on top of the house. And they hoisted their friend up uh, into, the, into the place on top of the roof, and they began to dig through the roof. 
And roofs in those days weren't like ours. You know, every few feet they had parallel beams, and then they had wood pieces, wood paneling, going in the opposite direction on top of these parallel beams, which are every state, you know, they were situated every three or four feet apart. And then it was wood and twigs and branches on top of that. And on top of that, they would put turf, and there was likely up to a foot of dirt that had been compacted on top of this roof. And so what you have is essentially this mini excavation project where these men are on the roof, they're desperate to see their friend who they love healed. And they start tearing apart the roof. And you can imagine the scene inside, you're sitting listening to Jesus teaching and all of a sudden light starts to come in through the ceiling. And dirt and dust and debris starts to fall on your, your head and your shoulders as there's this chaotic scene. And they open the roof and, and there's a hole large enough to let him down. And with ropes or cords or whatever, they lower this, I mean, it's a crazy scene. They lower this man down. You know, they don't even care. They don't, they don't ask the homeowner for permission or anything. They lower him down in front of Jesus right while he's teaching I mean, can you imagine that scene? You know, Jesus, as he's teaching, here's a man paralyzed with ropes and cords on a, on a sheet or a cot being lowered right in front of him. And I mean, in some way, the scene is total chaos, but it's also quite beautiful. Because it's a demonstration of how much they love their friend. Proverbs 17, 17 says... A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. And in some ways, it's a picture of how we ought to love others so much that we'll do anything to help get them to Jesus, right? Because we know Jesus' power to forgive and to heal and to save, and it's an, it's an emblem of what our lives should be like helping others to get to Jesus, helping others find Jesus, because at the feet of Jesus is healing and salvation and forgiveness. Another way to picture the scene is how God lowered Jesus, you could say, through the roof of heaven to earth to die on a cross because of his love for the world. I also want us to see that Jesus has authority to forgive. Jesus sees what's going on, and he doesn't just see this man's faith. He sees the faith of his friends and the love of his friends. And he says in verse 20, man, your sins are forgiven you. That might sound weird to us, right? Man, your sins are forgiven you. The word that it's translated from means um, someone who is a participant in the human race. One version says, friend, your sins are forgiven you. And the idea is that this person is a human being. In the civil rights movement, um, African Americans in this country, when they were marching with Martin Luther King, they often held signs saying, I am a man. Because they were dehumanized by the racism in our country. And in Jesus' day, people who were lame and sick and paralyzed because disease, like we mentioned last week, was associated with sin, that they were almost dehumanized. They weren't allowed into the temple. They weren't allowed to be priests. And in some of the more you know, devout communities, they weren't even allowed at all. 
And so Jesus acknowledges this person's humanity, man or friend, and he says, your sins are forgiven. You know, Christianity, Christian living, Christian worship, um, Christian worldview, Christian fellowship, Christian teaching are all predicated on the reality of forgiveness. Buddhism is primarily a way to live that one might attain nirvana, this kind of state of eternal bliss or nothingness. Islam seeks to earn paradise by maintaining goodness. In Islam, they believe that you kind of start with an A and you just have to keep it. So there's not a concept of sinfulness, let alone original sin that we're all born in sin. And Hindus actually don't even believe that man needs to be redeemed at all. And each of these religions and worldviews fail to recognize something that the Bible is occupied with on every page from Genesis to Revelation, and that's the holiness of God. When you understand that God is infinitely holy, no amount of good works or nice thoughts or even love for neighbor can close that gap between our sin and God's infinite perfect, absolute holiness. It's good to do good things. It's good to be good. But there is no way that we, in our own strength, can bridge the divide between us and a holy God. All of these different religions and worldviews seek to outpace sin by an abundance of good works or good living or good thoughts or whatever, But Christianity is, above all else, a religion centered on forgiveness. And in this, Christianity is utterly unique. You wouldn't find a story like this in those other sacred texts because there isn't that understanding that man is sinful and God is holy. Forgiveness is both our greatest need... And it's God's most important gift to us. And Carol touched on it a minute ago when she said it. I thought, man, that's exactly the notes. Those are the exact notes in my sermon. But she was right. You know, that is our greatest need is forgiveness. Above all else, above material uh, satisfaction, above, you know, happiness and fulfillment, we need forgiveness because there's no point in living this entire life and going to hell whole, if you will, having all the good things of this world. And Jesus even said, what shall a man or a woman gain if they, what, what, shall, what shall it profit them if they gain the whole world and what? And lose their own soul. Jesus brings forgiveness. And not only that, it's the only means for blessing, true blessing in this life and eternal life in heaven. <clears throat> Not long before she died in 1998, in a moment of surprising candor on television, Margarita um, Marganita Lasky, uh, one of our best-known secular humanists and novelists, said, "What I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have nobody to forgive me." And this is the reality that we have, that the world doesn't have 
that Jesus came into the world to save people from their sins, and through his name, everyone who believes receives forgiveness. Verse after verse after verse in Scripture demonstrates God's forgiving character, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old, right? We tend to think, well, you know, God was a really tough taskmaster in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, he got a lot nicer. But verse, there, there, I mean, there are so many verses in the Old Testament where God forgives, where he's demonstrated to be merciful and forgive, forgiving. In fact, the entire sacrificial system in the Old Testament is God providing a way for human beings to deal with sin. God's mercy spans from the beginning to the very end of Holy Scripture. Now, right in the middle of all of this, this scene that I just illustrated for you, the roof being ripped open, the light coming in, the debris on your shoulders, Jesus being, you know, teaching and having someone drop down in front of him. And Jesus utters these words, your sins are forgiven you. And as this is happening, the Pharisees have this going on in their head. Now, you may not have recognized it when I read through it, but essentially, it, the Pharisees are just thinking this. Who is this guy who's forgiving sins, knowing that only God can forgive sins only. They didn't utter it with their mouth. They were just thinking it. And Jesus, with his power, right, and this, this supernatural perception, it's like he hears white noise in the background. And he hears it. It's like, hold on. Hey, by the way, he recognizes what's going on in their heads and in their hearts. And he says... Um, when it says in verse 22, when Jesus perceived their thoughts and answered them, um, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven to you or to say rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And what Jesus is getting at is he's saying, what I'm about to do demonstrates that I have the authority to forgive this person because at this moment he hasn't healed the man. In fact, if you were the paralyzed man, you might be thinking, forgiveness? You know, are you going to heal me? But in Jesus' mind and in the mind of God, they're connected. And so the, even the healing is not an end in and of itself. We've been saying that for the past few weeks about Jesus' miracles the miracles Jesus is performing are symbols and emblems that he's been invested with authority to save people, and he has power over Satan. And so Jesus says to the paralyzed man, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. Now, if you just take inventory of that for a moment, just think about it for a moment. This is a man paralyzed, likely with cerebral palsy or some other you know, ailment where he can't really even move. Paralyzed. He's probably spent years on a cot or a mat. I mean, he can't even do anything for himself. His friends are carrying him in. And in front of all of these people, including the Pharisees, Jesus just says to him, 
rise up and take up your mat. And he stands up. He doesn't need a process of recovery. He doesn't have to go to intensive care to, you know, to, to, and physical therapy you know, to start you know, getting strength back in his legs. You know, if you've ever had surgery or your arm in a cast or you, know, you, you lose muscle. My daughter, she broke her wrist a few weeks ago. And her cast came off on Thursday, and her left arm you know, is like really skinny compared to the right arm. And this man doesn't have to go to physical therapy. Jesus immediately heals him, and it's a symbol of how Jesus immediately forgives. The power invested in Jesus Christ is the ability to immediately make us whole in the sight of God. There isn't penance we have to do. There isn't a long process of recovery. In fact, Christian living and drawing closer to God is not securing our salvation. It's just growing in the image of God. But we're saved the moment Jesus saves us. When we ask for forgiveness, Jesus forgives us. Like I said, there's no penance necessary. We are immediately made whole And the Bible says here that all were filled with awe, saying, Today we have seen extraordinary things. Jesus' healing of the paralyzed man is a beautiful illustration of grace. We are completely unable in our sins and trespasses to help ourselves, we're really helpless. We don't meet God halfway. God completely and entirely saves us by an act of his grace. We don't enable God. We don't do anything to make God want to save us. There's nothing we can do. Ephesians 2 says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were dead. But God, who is rich in mercy, verse 5, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. This man is saved by grace. He's physically completely incapacitated. There is a total inability physically for him to come to Jesus. And it is a beautiful picture for us of how we're unable to come to Jesus. Jesus comes to us, or he draws us to him by grace, and grace alone, right? Dead people don't walk themselves into a hospital. It is by grace we've been saved. And in this sense, to just stretch the metaphor a little bit, we're all paralytics in the sight of God. Paralyzed by sin, unable to function the way that we're meant to until Jesus forgives us. In the book of Numbers, there was a bronze serpent that was put up and lifted up on a pole, which God told Moses to erect to protect the Israelites who saw it from dying because they had been bitten by fiery serpents because of their disobedience. God tells Moses, Uh, to raise up this bronze serpent on a pole. And everyone who looked on the serpent on this pole was healed. This is in the book of Numbers. 
And they were judged because they had spoke out against God, but God had mercy on them. John 3.14 says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up on the cross, that is, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. We're saved when we look to Christ. And even though we continue with sin habits, we need to keep looking to Christ. And I want to tell you this morning, if you found, find yourself in a place where sin is ravaging your life, and you're already a Christian, what you need to do is look again to Christ. He doesn't stop being the healer after we're saved, after we come to know him. He provides for us and offers to us continual and perpetual forgiveness and healing. Only Jesus has the authority to heal us and make us whole. Let's pray. Father God, now we, we thank you for this word of encouragement and this story to illustrate to us just how merciful you are. That we ought not to think that we're alone in our struggle against sin, but that you provide for us continued healing and renewal because of your shed blood by the power of the Holy Spirit and the love of the Father. So God, now we pray that you would help us not only to have a clear picture of how you forgive and make us whole, but that also, oh God, that that healing we've received because we've looked to Jesus who was lifted up on the cross, that that we should also take to others, our friends and neighbors whom you've commanded us to love. Like the friends of this paralyzed man who took him to Christ. Lord, we ask all of these things in the name of your son. Amen.